please open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2. We're going to be reading chapter 2, verse 1 through 311. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on 693. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the translation Pastor West will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their families have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impotent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such... They would listen to you, 
but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. May God bless to our understanding the reading of his holy word. Please keep your Bibles open to Ezekiel chapter 2, and let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this word from the prophet that you gave to him. And I pray now indeed that we would hear your words with our heart and receive with our ears and receive it in our hearts, Father, that we would be nourished and we would be obedient to you and give you glory in our lives. I pray, Father, for your blessing now on this time. May the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. May your spirit uh, work through your word in all of our lives to wrought faith and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I begin the second sermon uh, on Ezekiel, I would like once again to return us to the land of Narnia. There's a point in the book Prince Caspian where the four children, Edmund, Peter, Susan, and Lucy, return to Narnia. And it's a changed Narnia. It's a Narnia that they do not recognize. And at some point in this book, they are trying to find their way to this, to this Prince Caspian, and they become hopelessly lost. And as they stumble along, trying to find their way, Lucy sees Aslan, and Aslan beckons her to follow him. However, none of the other children, nor the dwarf Trumpkin, see Aslan, and they do not believe her and continue on her path, their path in the wrong direction. And they become even more hopelessly lost. Now that night, as they sleep in the forest, Lucy wakes, and she stumbles upon Aslan in the woods. The lion tells her that she needs to go wake everyone and lead them in the direction to which he will lead her. And Lucy asks a question to this. Will the others see you too? Certainly not at first, says Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, complains Lucy. To which Aslan replies, it doesn't matter. 
You see, what was important for Lucy to know was what Aslan had commanded her. The outcome of that particular command was, as it were, out of her pay grade. Her job was to listen and obey. In fact, she was called to follow Aslan on the correct path, whether her her siblings and the dwarf Trumpkin followed her or not. And we see a similar expectation in the commissioning of both the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They are called to bring a message to a stubborn and rebellious people. Both are told that they will not be listened to. Ezekiel himself is told that he is being sent to a rebellious house, an impudent and stubborn people, descendants who uh, have a hard face and a hard forehead. Yet this is to make no difference. Whether they listen or not, Ezekiel is called to go and proclaim the word of the Lord. He is called to obey regardless of the consequences. Now, last time we stopped, Ezekiel had seen a vision of the Lord enthroned in glory. There was light everywhere, the sound of a tumult, voices, thunder, lightning, flashing fire, strange-looking angels, wheels. And what was Ezekiel's response to this? Well, it was a right response. He fell on his face before this great and awesome sight of the Lord. And as we pick up our text today, God commands the stricken prophet to stand on his feet. And it would seem that he is too shaken to do this, for the Spirit enters in him and lifts him up. That gracious helper, the Spirit props him up and causes the prophet to stand before God. And following this, God gives Ezekiel his commissioning as a prophet. And as you might have noticed in the reading, there is an awful lot of repetition here. Now, why does God repeat himself so often in this text? Well, this is a common tool used in Scripture to teach, to emphasize, to highlight something that is important that is being said. God repeats himself in order to cause ears to perk up and hearts to heed. So may our ears perk up now and our hearts be receptive to what God has to say to us today. And the first thing that God says to Ezekiel is he stands him on his feet. He is being sent to the people of Israel. And I want you to notice that while God has a lot of words for these people, he never refers to him, them as his people. He calls them a nation of rebels, those who have transgressed as a family practice, impudent, stubborn, worse than Gentiles, because Gentiles would listen. You see, the house of Israel was not acting like the children of Abraham. What good is it that they called themselves God's people? But they did not live like it. They had no love for God in their hearts that flowed out to a life of faith, repentance, and obedience. As James says, such faith is a fraud. And these people were certainly not acting as God's people. And it is to these that Ezekiel sent, and he says to them, uh, Go and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Or as the Hebrew says, Thus says Lord Yahweh. Ezekiel is tasked with bringing God's words, the words of the covenant God, and his words alone to those who have broken faith with him. Ezekiel was God's mouthpiece, and given whom he was going to, I imagine this would probably have been an intimidating task. You know, he's being sent to these stubborn, rebellious people who he's told will not listen to him. They would have nothing. He was not people, he was said, he was not being sent to people who would sit willingly under his teaching, who would go up and thank him for a stirring message afterwards. 
He was being sent to those who had have nothing but scorn for him and contempt. Why? Because they first had scorn and contempt for their God. Yet Ezekiel is sent to them all the same. Look what it says in verse 5. Whether they listen to you or not. And again, this is an important truth for the people of God. Ezekiel's primary concern is obedience, as is ours. The results of the work, again, it's out of our pay grade. And so often, aren't our priorities results? Whether an endeavor is practical or economic, profitable or liable to fail, we are very results-oriented, so we tend to shy away from or reject those things which do not produce immediate results in our lives and in our ministries. I imagine that this is one reason why we tend to have a hard time praying, why prayer meetings are regularly at the bottom of many priority lists. I also imagine this is why many churches have set aside the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word in order to give popular worldly talks that fill their pews with people who are frankly no more alive than the rest of the world. But again, success or failure is not the call of God to Ezekiel, nor is it for us. The results of the proclamation of God's word are his work alone. We are called to simply obey and let the church never think that it knows how to do things better than God, that we know how to get his work done instead of him. Instead, we have the call here to submit ourselves to him, to be faithful to his calling, to trust that he is the one who will accomplish his works, that he will build up his church, As the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. And we have God's promise in his word that his word will always accomplish what he sends it out to do. But let me pause and ask a question. What is it that we expect God's word to do? What are the fruits that we hope to see that that it will accomplish? Do we, has the word only accomplished something when it produces converts, when people come to faith? Is that how we are to quantify our ministry success, the fruits of ministry? Well, no. For while we desire to preach the gospel and see people come to faith and repentance, that is not the only result which the word of God brings. Note what verse 5 says here. I send you to them. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they refuse or, hear to, or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has but been among them. So yes, through the ministry of the word, men and women are saved and given new life in Christ. They hear God's word and proclaim, Surely God has sent his messenger to us. And they rejoice. Yet there is another fruit. There is another terrible fruit that God's word produces. It is a fruit of judgment for the impenitent. Those who hear the word of God yet refuse to listen, they have no excuse. They will know that a prophet has been among them. They will not be able to say, I did not know. Or how could anyone know? They will not. Why didn't you give us a sign, God? Why didn't you make things more clear? Jesus says, if you do not believe Moses or the prophets, how will you believe even though a man is raised from the dead? They will be without an excuse before God because they heard his warning. 
They have the testimony of the created world. They have the testimony of his work in their midst. But they will know that a prophet has been among them. God's word and his messengers will be vindicated. But those who hear it and reject it will be without excuse. For when they reject the messenger, they are rejecting the one whom he has sent. Now, do we not believe this? Well, listen to what Jesus says in the Gospels. And this is a passage you all are probably very, very familiar with. Well, at least with part of it, the world is even familiar with it. But we tend to neglect the second part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That is John three sixteen to 18. So to reject the word of God is no light matter. And to reject the Savior? Well, that is folly of follies. If rejecting Ezekiel or another one of the prophets produces God's wrath and displeasure, one who is a messenger, what will happen to the one who rejects his very son? May all who hear this be warned. Now, to return to the, God's words to Ezekiel, we see in here one of the most common exhortations found in Scripture. Do not be afraid. In particular, Ezekiel is called to not be afraid of his audience, nor their words, nor to be dismayed at their looks. And we all know that fear. The fear of what someone will say, the look on their face that shows that they aren't happy with us or uh, they're upset. I remember in seminary, when I was preaching for the first times, that look was more frightening than someone pointing a gun at me. Yet Ezekiel is told not to be afraid of their responses to him. And they will have responses. They will hate him. They will chew him out. They will give him the old stink eye. And his life as a prophet will be filled with uncomfortableness. Look at what he says here. He says, though you sit on thorns and thistles and scorpions. No, I don't know if you've ever sat on any of these. I've sat on bees, poor bees. I've sat on thorn bushes. I've fallen into stinging nettles. And let me tell you that they are not comfortable. It's like landing on a fire. You, you jump off immediately. And Ezekiel is commanded not to flee these things. Though his days are filled with such uncomfortable things, though he is sitting forever on thorns and thistles and scorpions, he is told not to flee. Now why is he told not to fear them or flee these things? Note the reason that he gives us in our text. God says, because they are a rebellious house. Now why should this be a reason not to fear them? I can say that if I was assigned to a rebellious church, I would find that somewhat intimidating. Well, I'll ask you to hold on to that question. We will come with, to an answer in time. Our text will give it to us. So God, again, God's called Ezekiel, go to this rebellious house. 
and proclaim with them that my word, whether they are willing to listen or not. Now God turns his attention on Ezekiel himself. He says, but you, says the Lord, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Ezekiel is here exhorted to personal obedience to God. To not be, let that rebellion influence him. He is to faithfully fulfill his duties as a prophet. And not only this, but we see later he is called to hear these words in his heart, or hear these words with his ears and receive them in our heart. He is not only to be the messenger of God's word, but he is to be an obedient recipient of it as well. And it is at this point that we get one of the more unusual images in the Bible. This is, of course, when he's called to eat the scroll. Well, why is he called to eat a scroll? Well, first and foremost, this is a reference to his equipping, to his being equipped with a message to proclaim to uh, Israel. But that could have been visualized another way. Maybe he would have handed him a scroll like a messenger. So why is he eating it? What is significant about this act? Well, as I've already hinted at, we have this idea in our culture, the, the, the idea of digesting somebody's words. And it doesn't mean to literally eat their words. It means to consider what they say, to really think it over, to absorb it. And this is a picture which we see in this book, the call to not just be a proclaimer of God's message, but a doer of it as well. Ezekiel, again, is called to respond in faith and absorb everything that he hears here into his being. You know, particularly as someone who is proclaiming the word to others, he must be one to listen to it himself. You know, we have this warning in Scripture against teachers who do not practice what they preach. Paul says this in Romans, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you, not, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You see, along with being a faithful deliverer of God's message, a contender for the faith, Ezekiel must heed it himself. And so much we. So many times I remember in my youth sitting under a sermon thinking, I know who needs to hear this. When the person who needed to hear it the most was myself. Let us not be like that, but let us each, as we, comp- as we cry out for the faith, as we contend against the world, make sure that we first are absorbing and eating it ourselves. And it is at this point that we see God, the contents of God's message to Ezekiel, a scroll that is filled to the brim with words of lamentation, of mourning, and woe. This doesn't sound very nice, does it? But how could the people of Israel Expect any less. How can any rebels expect anything less from God against whom they've sinned? God is holy and righteous and just, and he cannot abide evil. God will not stay quiet about sin, particularly when said rebels are those called by his name. He will vindicate his righteousness. He will be the just and righteous judge of the world. So God will speak out against sin. He will not keep quiet about it. So how can we, or anyone, who is accounted as a rebel before God, expect any less from him? But there's another reason. 
And this is not a reason that we oftentimes associate with such words. We hear such things and we say, oh gosh, uh, a doom and gloom preacher. But have you ever thought that this is a message of mercy? God's message of condemnation becomes a message of mercy for those who listen to it. Do you find that surprising? Well, why is that the case? Consider this. Imagine you're at the side of a road and you see someone stepping out in front of a speeding car. What is a merciful thing to do? Look out! Grab them! Pull them off the road! Or should you mind your own business? Because, well, that would be judgmental otherwise, or all ways to cross the road are equally valid. No. The merciful thing to do is to drag them out of the way of a car. God sent his prophet. God sent his son. And his son, Jesus, sent his apostles into the world to proclaim a message both of warning and salvation. Warning that all sin will bring God's wrath and judgment. All sin counts the sinner as a rebel before him. And the promise of salvation from that judgment through the blood of Jesus. Because both are an integral part of God's message, those who would be messengers of the gospel must be aware of removing it because we don't want people to feel bad or, well, we don't want to drive anyone away. We must proclaim the whole gospel of Christ, lest we be guilty of proclaiming none of it. Now, we have a scroll filled with words of lamentation and mourning and woe. How do you think that would taste? Bitter, acrid, sour, papery? Well, would you be surprised to find that this message is sweet as honey? I imagine maybe the prophet was surprised as well. I can imagine his eyes lighting up if he takes that first tentative bite. Now, why is it sweet as honey? Why is such a message, would, would it be tasty and delicious? Well, again, for the very reasons I just said. This message of lamentation and mourning and woe is not a pleasant one, is not a popular one, but it is necessary. Have you ever had someone at some point in your life give you a warning that turned your life around? That caused you to rethink your decisions? How do you feel about those words now? I'm hoping that you probably, I'm hoping that you don't look at them as, with bitterness and disdain. Well, how dare they said that to me? How dare they change my life for the better? Or think about Christian. How, what, what, was the, what, what was the first message you heard that changed, made you think, take your sins seriously, made you think you needed a Savior? How do you look on that message now? I'm guessing it's as sweet as honey to your lips. Though the conviction of sin is a painful thing, how sweet is a message that wakes you up and tells you your greatest danger and then sends you to Jesus, your greatest need? And along with this, there's another reason why it's sweet. Because, Jesus, because Ezekiel was called to be a prophet of God. He was, this was not going to be an easy life, but it would be a sweet one. Because he was drawing near to God. He was called to the ministry of the word. Listen to what Jeremiah says about that. 
Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. The word of God is light and life and will indeed be sweet and nourishing to all who feed upon it. What's more, to be called by God, to be called by his name, to be in sweet fellowship with him. What greater joy could there be in life? What greater sweetness? So have you come to taste and see that the Lord is good? Are you willing to bear the thorns and thistles of this world for the joy of walking with the Lord, of belonging to Christ? Or are you trying to avoid them at any cost, even at the eternal cost? Now following this vision, God reiterates his words of commissioning to the prophet. And he further elaborates on just how rebellious and stubborn these people are. He says, even pagans, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But Israel will not listen to me. Even though Israel was the recipient of God's word and his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness, they presumed on his grace. And now they're rebels. They're counted as rebels before him. These are a people of a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. And I imagine that you've guessed from the title of my sermon that this image of the hard forehead stuck out to me. So what does it mean to have a hard forehead? Well, I think the idiom is close enough to our idiom of having a, being hard-headed. Is, is, they're close enough that we don't have a problem understanding them. We even have the idea of butting heads. And I imagine when I think about this, a goat. An obstinate goat always ready to fight with anyone that never wants to uh, be led but always go, will drag against uh, someone, go in its own way. It doesn't want to be led in any direction except what it wants to do. I don't know if you've ever seen a goat. Goats are stubborn, honorary creatures. When I went to seminary, there was some goats there at a nearby farm. Walls were a problem for them. Well, not much of a problem, but they didn't like being penned in. They didn't like somebody leading them on a rope. They didn't like any, to do anything but what they wanted. I, rem- I remember, remember a male goat so eager to get out of its pen that it was nonstop banging its horns against a solid oak door. Bang, 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 for 10 minutes straight because it wanted out. This is what these people are. Their feet are dug in. Their ears are shut. Their necks stiff. They refuse to budge an inch. And they will not tolerate anyone telling them what to do. Not even God Almighty. And there are some who pride themselves on being this way. And while there may be a place and a time for being stubborn, for being of high resolve, what about when you stand before the Um, in opposition to the creator of heaven and earth. Yes, maybe you don't budge before any man, but how will you stand before the Lord of glory? Well, look look at verse 8 and 9. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their face, and your forehead as hard as their forehead. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And it's finally here that we see why Ezekiel is not to fear them. Why he's not to fear a rebellious house or rebellious people. And emery, if you're not familiar, emery is a very hard substance. We use it on nail files and other abrasive material. 
It's probably one of the hardest they had at the time. And God is saying that while Israel will be hard of face and forehead, Ezekiel will be made harder still. And again, we have a similarity between God's promise to Ezekiel and what he says to Jeremiah. This is what he says to Jeremiah. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and they will fight against you. But they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So as stubborn and unyielding as this lot will be, they will be dashed to pieces against the prophet. And this isn't because the prophet himself is strong and stubborn, but only because he has taken refuge in the shelter of the Lord God Almighty. God has promised to protect Ezekiel and to cause him to stand before those who oppose him. He will be vindicated and shown to be a true prophet. But these rebels, they have no such promise, no such protection. Therefore, the prophet is called not to fear them any more than a tank would fear a butterfly. This is rebellious house will indeed clash with Ezekiel. But they will find that they have bitten off more than they can chew because who they are really clashing with is a God, the creator of the universe. They will seek to silence the prophet, but God will find in the end, but they will find in the end that they will be the ones who have their mouth shut. And this is the case for every rebel who stands against the Lord. Think about what Jesus promises in the Gospels, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And look at the testimonies of Scripture and history. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they tried to silence Jesus and his apostles. But where are they now? Where is their order now? They are dead. And the only records we have of them in in the Gospels are as an example of unbelief. In the same way, the Roman Empire tried to exterminate the church. And which of the two are still standing today? Where is Nero? Where is Domitian? Where is Valerian? They are dead and forgotten. But the church of God still stands. The gospel continues to spread throughout the world. And even those Christians who Rome thought that they had snuffed out, they stand before God this day in eternal worship and joy. I can't help but think about a man I once knew who spent a lot of his life trying to disprove and discredit the Bible. Well, do you want to know where he is now? I'm sorry to say that he had a sudden heart attack and he died on the floor of his home. And I tremble to think what this man's experienced as he stood before God and found out his mistake, found out when it was too late. So I ask, is there any here who reject God's word? Who deny that this book is from the Lord? Who say that there is no evidence? Well, look here at the fate for all who set themselves as a rebel against God. Whether they rebel in the place of their private hearts or actively chase his people and try to snuff out his word. I warn you, that if you too are rebellion against God this way, you are on a collision course with the Lord God Almighty. Do you think that you will fare any better than anyone else has? And as for you Christians who have been called by his name, how should this affect your life? Well, we didn't read this, 
But at the end of Ezekiel's vision, as he is being lifted up by the Spirit, he has one more glimpse of the glory of God. He sees the radiance form upon the throne. He sees the four cherubim with their mighty wings flashing, the wheels beside them. And he hears this benediction as he leaves. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. And this is a fitting send-off for the prophet. This is a fitting send-off for the people of God. It reminds us and him of his great goal in all of this. Ezekiel's goal as a prophet is not to be his own comfort, his self-esteem or his reputation, his advancement in his career, or even his peace and prosperity, because we will see that Ezekiel will have those things and uh, will not have many of those things in his ministry. So what is to be his great motivator? It is that the glory of the Lord would be blessed. That God would be honored and praised as is right and fitting and proper. That the message of his judgment and mercies would be proclaimed. And I want you to remind you that this vision that Ezekiel saw of God sitting above the cherubims is an expression of his mercy seat that was in the temple. And it's an expression of his covenant faithfulness. And ultimately, it is an expression of Christ Jesus. This is the image that was to cause Ezekiel to not fear. This is the image that was to call him to fulfill his calling. And when the glory and mercy of the Lord is a chief motivator in our life, what will we fear from in this world? Will dour faces or biting words or hard foreheads or thorns and thistles frighten us? Will we be able to be silent? No, we will not. The one who has truly been impacted by the glory of God, who has made him their chief treasure, who has experienced his mercy, will have nothing to fear from this world, from any man, not even from Satan himself. They will draw near to God and find that all others flee from them. They will find themselves strengthened and bolstered with God's own might to find themselves fully equipped and unmovable. Now, in contrast to this, what about the person whose main love and motivation is something other than God? something other than his glory. What will they fear on earth? Well, I think the better question is to ask, what won't they fear? So which one is your chief delight? Is it the glory of the Lord? Have you truly beheld him? Have you seen Christ as he is freely offered in in the pages of Scripture? So that there's nothing that you want more than the cleansing he gives and to be made a child of God? Are you ready to obey him, no matter what the consequences? Do you have no fear of thorns or thistles? Or will, again, will you do anything to avoid them, to protect your real treasure? The glory and mercy of the Lord is the only cure for the fear of man and the fears of this world. It opens the mouth of the silent. It is the anchor for the soul of the faithful when they feel pressed on all around. Their hope is in him. And such hope will not, lead to, will not put them to shame. Christ has overcome the world by his death and resurrection. And he calls you, do not despair, nor to fear that you are sitting on thorns or thistles or scorpions. But hold fast, persevere, contend to the end. Dear Christian, when you are prone to fear, listen to Christ's words. In this world you will have trouble, says Jesus. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
He has overcome the world through his death and resurrection. And if he died for your sins, what, will he not else, what else will he not save you from? Why will he neglect you? Though your life is hidden with him, and though you lose it in this world, you will not lose it eternally. Therefore, he calls us in his word to go forth and proclaim the excellencies of Christ, whether the world listens to us or not. And finally, what about you who have never believed in the Savior? Let me warn you that you are still counted as a rebel before God, not only for rejecting his Son, but because you have broken his commandments. Maybe you pride yourself on being stubborn, a skeptic, only doing your own way. Sure, you may have a hard forehead, but between you and God, whose forehead is harder? If you continue as a rebel, there is no promise for God in you. For, for you uh, there is no promise for you in God's word, except the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Maybe you won't experience it in this lifetime, but one day you will stand before him in judgment, and in a judgment that will last for all eternity. I call you today to hear this message, take it to heart, eat it, feed your belly with it, and recognize that you stand guilty before him. And he promises, God promises, that anyone who confesses their sin and casts themselves upon the mercy of Jesus, whoever does this will find forgiveness and eternal life as they change from a rebel into a child of God. This is the sweet message of the gospel. Won't you taste it today? Let's pray. Oh, glorious God, we see your glory before us. We throw ourselves down at your feet. We ask for your forgiveness for being rebels and those of hard forehead, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would all taste your word and see that it is sweet to our hearts, our, our mouths, and sweet to our souls. May we be willing to go forth and proclaim your excellencies no matter what the world says, no matter what the consequences are because we have you as our great treasure. We have Christ as our Lord, and what more do we need? What can, what can man do to us when you have saved us? I pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.